0: Or Parasite from South Korean Netflix. Over a hundred different countries. All you have to do is change your location and refresh Netflix or whatever. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. In fact, when I set it up for myself, I was surprised at how easy it was. It just installs and then loads up and works. And it works on more than just PCs, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and so much more. So, if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now: expressvpn.com/ringslore, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com/ringslore. expressvpn.com/ringslore to learn more. Welcome to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast. The show that explores the background of Tolkien's amazing world from the very beginning. Our story is now completely in a different world. The rules are changed. We are in Valinor, the holy city of the powers of Arda. The way things work here is different and continues to be more and more different from the rest of Middle-earth. In a time not too long from now, Valinor will be separated from the rest of the physical world, physically, not just with a barrier of oceans and hard-to-navigate islands and dark, mysterious fog of some sort, but actually removed from the world. This will happen soon, but even now, even while Valinor is still part of the rest of the world physically it is a place where things happen differently the rules of what we can expect do not apply I'm forwarding this episode with this warning warning we might be a little bit too strong with a a framing of, of the situation because today's episode is firmly in the realm of myth and symbology. And we know for the rest of these works, the rest of the Silmarillion, there is a lot of myth, there is a lot of symbology. I've been pointing out a lot of it on this show. But today's episode is steeped in it. Erendil, or Erendil, our main character, the character that we've been following for this portion of the story, and his wife Elwing, are about to undergo transformations that will make them some of the most well-known elves who have ever lived. The name Erendil itself, Erendil, I'm still probably not pronouncing that correctly, is similar to another name. If you are familiar with Germanic mythology, Arvandil is a name that might Sound familiar to you, Arvindil means rising star or the morning star. And I don't think that's a coincidence. Because Erindil is about to become the morning star of Arda. When we left off last time, Erindil and Elwing both chose, for the first time, first individuals in the history of the world, were able to choose their lineage. Choose whether they live the lives of elves or of men. Which fate will they get? They both pick elves. So we know that they are now eternal, like every elf. They will not die of old age or disease, and they will exist in some form until the end of the world. Now, immediately after this, we are told that Eonwe, the Valar, goes to the shore of Amon. Eonwe is making things happen. Things are in motion. Erendil's coming to the Valar has sparked action and the Valar are not waiting. So the first thing Aeonwe does is goes and finds the companions of erindil who are still waiting at the boat, waiting for some word of what's going on. I can imagine they're wondering why it's taking so long. And we aren't given their perspective of the story, although that would be very interesting to see. But what we are told is interesting the valar send the boat away off a wind into the east and at the same time they transform the vessel Vingalot is the name of the boat if you recall and the first thing we are told is that they took Vingalot and hallowed it now the word here is not hallowed it it is hallowed to make holy for whatever that means in the world, they take this vessel and they make it holy. My head canon on this is that they envelop it with some magic or power that separates it, because that's what holy means. Holy means to make separate, that separates it from any other vessel, from any other earth-born device for going across the ocean. And in separating it from other boats, it not only can go in the ocean, but also now can lift off into the sky and to the stars. They took Vingalot and hallowed it and bore it away through Valinor to the uttermost rim of the world. And there it passed through the door of night. Remember, this world is not really a globe yet. There are boundaries to the world. They go so far east, they hit the boundary of the door of night, and that is in capitals. And it was lifted up even into the oceans of heaven. Now, heaven in this phrase does not mean a place you go when you die, it means the sky, the stars. And we're given some other details here as well. Now, fair and marvelous was that vessel made, and it was filled with a wavering flame. Now, wavering has multiple meanings in our culture today. It could mean diminishing, but in this context, it means like waving, like the flames were actually moving and thriving and licking like uh, the tongues of the flames. That's a weird thing to say, but I'm going to keep it in there. Uh, it goes on and says, pure and bright. And Erendil the mariner sat at the helm. So now we know, not only does this boat have the three companions, but Erendil himself, guiding the boat... He sat at the helm, glistening with dust of elven gems, which describes a little bit more of the dust that he collected walking through the streets. The idea of Valinor being this heavenly city, this this concept of heaven being paved with streets of gold, it's kind of a similar sort of thing. There is gem and beauty in this city, so much so that the dust itself is made out of gems, and it is still on his body, reflecting the light of the Silmaril on his brow. And that's another subtle point. It specifically says, and the Silmaril was bound upon his brow, on his forehead, almost like on a crown or some sort of device holding it to his head, or maybe merged with his actual physical body. We aren't told the specifics about that right here. But we know that it is no longer in a necklace. It is not hanging on his neck. It is coming from his head. And I feel like there's something symbolic about that as well. It is not something that is adorned as if it's a piece of jewelry. It is something that acts like a piece of his face. It looks where he looks. Almost like a third eye. It goes on and says, Far he journeyed in that ship, even into the starless voids. But most often... Was he seen at morning or at evening, glimmering in sunrise or sunset, as he came back to Valinor from voyages beyond the confines of the world? So you might be asking right now, why? <laughs> what are they doing? Why did the Valar holy, holify, hallow, a boat and send Arendelle and his three companions off into the stars What is the point of that? And I think part of it is that they are making safe the Silmaril. The Silmaril is beyond Morgoth's reach. Morgoth cannot extend his power out to the stars themselves. The second answer is that this is only the first of three Silmarils. And the other two will end up in different types of places. Let's just say that for now. So one in the sky that looks like a star, the morning star that rises before the sun or sets after the sun. In our own world, we have a morning star. Often it's confused. It's it's the planet of Venus. And the reason why it appears to rise before the sun or set after the sun is because it's closer to the sun than we are in Our orbits. So it's always close to the sun, and when we are able to see it is when it's at night, which is just after the sun goes down or just before the sun rises. So it's always in proximity to the direction of the sun in the sky. And it's bright. There is a lot of light reflecting off of Venus to our planet from the sun. Sometimes it's confused as Mercury because Mercury does the same kind of thing but Mercury is much closer to the Sun and and the, the chance of being able to see it in the sky is much smaller And it's right at sunset or right before sunrise and sometimes Morning star also means the star Sirius Which also tends to appear in the summer months in the northern hemisphere early at sunrise between July and September in this world The Morning Star is an individual, an elf on a boat with three companions, with a Silmaril on his brow. And this is phenomenal when you think about it, because the Morning Star still exists in the Second Age. It still exists in the Third Age. Erendil is still traveling to and from Arda with a Silmaril on his brow. And Erendil is the father of Elrond. So from Elrond's perspective in the Lord of the Rings stories, if he goes outside at night and looks up and sees this star, which isn't a star, up in the sky, he's seeing his father who left him (laughs) in order to go to Valinor to ask for help from the Valar and who got sent into the stars. It's kind of crazy when you think about it. Like, it's a made-up story, a myth that has a fun idea of how it actually was put together, but isn't really the truth. But in this world, that is the truth. That is the literal truth of the situation. And it's kind of cool to think about. Now, the other piece of this I find particularly interesting is that he goes beyond the door of night into the oceans of the heavens, into the stars, and also the void. The void between the stars. What else is he experiencing out there? Those four companions on that ship, are they discovering other worlds? Are they interacting with other beings? It's kind of mind-boggling when you think about it. Now, you also might be wondering, well, what about Elwing? Elwing doesn't go on the boat with him. She goes into Valinor, she goes to uh, onto the shores of Amon, and then lets him go off on his own and she stays back in order to talk to the Valar because that's his place. Similar kind of thing here. He gets on the boat with the companions, heads off into the stars. She remains. And that was her place. That was her choice. And he comes back and visits. They're not totally separated, but she remains in Valinor. It says in the text, on those journeys, Elwing did not go. For she might not endure the cold and the pathless voids. And she loved rather the earth and the sweet winds that blow on sea and hill. So this raises the question as well, well. What about the other companions? What about Arendelle? And I think that has to do with the, the hallowing. They were made to be able to do this. But she was not. And she didn't want to be. She wanted to remain on the earth. And specifically it mentions here, with the sweet winds. Remember, she was turned into a bird. It goes on. Therefore she was built for her a white tower northward upon the borders of the sundering seas. And thither, at times, all the seabirds of the earth repaired. It's as if she has become almost like a maya of birds, of seabirds. And it is said that Elwing learned the tongues of birds who herself had once worn their shape. So not only now does she live in a tower and talk with the birds, learn their tongues, give them a place of refuge, a place of safety and healing. But she can talk to them too. But then something else happens. They taught her the craft of flight and her wings were of white and silver-gray. Not only do they teach her to fly, but she grows wings. It's as if the transformation into a bird by Ulmo was something that she could will back in some way, giving her wings to fly with the birds that she loved so much. And those wings were white and silver-gray, kind of like seabird wings, like seagulls. And at times, when Arendelle returned, drawing near again to Arda, She would fly to meet him, even as she had flown long ago when she was rescued from the sea. That same journey she took, leaving Middle-earth, being turned into a bird, flying off into the sea, looking for his ship, and then finally finding him and passing out on the deck, and then he held her all night until she turned back into her regular form. This is being echoed here. She does this again. And of course, I don't think she passes out and falls asleep or anything like that. But when he returns, she flies up into the sky to meet him. And remember I talked about how Arendelle could be seen by other people through other ages of the world? Well, she could too. Then the farsighted among the elves that dwell in the lonely isle would see her like a white bird shining rose stained in the sunset as she soared in joy to greet the coming of vingalot to haven Go check these out today. Search for Eufy Video Lock, that's E-U-F-Y Video Lock, or visit eufyofficial.com slash video lock to see how you can gain complete control of your door. Again, search Eufy Video Lock, I think you'll love it. All right, here we are in the middle of the show, and big shout-outs to all of our patrons, including our newest patrons. Let's go through the list. Ryan S., Wesley K., Warper, David T., Helena, uh, Anakin Skywalker. I don't know if this is the same. Wait, what? did I think Anderson... Wait, is this the same... I'm so confused. Welcome back, maybe? Uh, John S. Maybe there's a few of you out there. And Swiggy Swoo. (laughs) That's a good name. Welcome, everybody. I hope you were enjoying the ad-free episodes. And for those of you who signed up for the bonus episodes and also getting in for tier three stuff for your shout outs every week, plus t-shirts. And just a reminder, I had some people ask, hey, I signed up, haven't got a t-shirt yet. They come out every three months. So you sign up, you stick around for three months, you get the first shirt. You stick around for three more months, you get the next shirt. And it's kind of one of those like... You know, keep sticking around, helping to support, and you get something every so often. So, thank you to all of you for your support. Also, we got to shout out our VIP patrons. Words are hard. There's a t-shirt on the store that says words are hard. It's also one of the shirts that you get if you sign up as a VIP patron. Man, that's appropriate. All right, let's go through the list real quick. Anakin Skywalker, Austin C., Azel Razzle, Azel Razzle, oh, I mess that up every time, Bo, Brad S, Brandy D, Chewbacca, Christopher D, David S, David M, Drupal, Esoteric Rage, Gavin O'Laf, Goldberry, Jesse P, Katie S, Larry, Lauren C, Michael E, Nick K, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Patrick W, Sam B, Shannon L, T-Rex, TJT, Wes P, who let the Juan out? That's everybody. Thank you so much for your support. That's all the VIP patrons. And, um, if you're interested and curious about what all these people are doing, signing up for this show, go to patreon.com slash L O T R Lorecast and you can check out everything over there. Also, we've got one new review this week. This comes from Benjamin Guard. This is on Apple Podcasts, which reminder, if you want to get your review read out on a future episode, do it on Apple Podcasts. Five star reviews get read out. This one says, Great show. Really enjoy listening to this at work. Simple, to the point. Thank you so much, Benjamin Guard. And uh Anybody else who wants to help out the show with reviews or I guess the ratings on Spotify or whatever other platform you listen to this on or sharing with your friends or coworkers or family, any of that stuff. Lots of wonderful stories about people sharing this with their families and listening together and, and those kinds of things. So thank you for all the support. Let's move on with the rest of the show. So I mentioned that she would fly into the air in order to meet his ship. And she looked like a white bird shining, rose stained in the sunset. And I feel like there's some symbolism here. I mean, it it seems like it's a literal explanation of what is going on. She turns into a bird and flies up into the sky and reflects the light of the sun. But it also feels like an astronomical occurrence. And I was thinking like, like a comet or some, sometimes comets are red hued. I think that's the closest thing I can come to here. So we have the morning star and then we have Arendelle, the morning star and Elwing, like a comet rising to to meet it in the sky. And as we all know, mythologically, in religious contexts, comets and signs in the sky have been part of our culture for a very long time. So this ties into that in, in a really big way with both of them. But there's more to the story here. Now, when first Vingilot was set to sail in the seas of heaven, it rose unlooked for, glittering and bright. And this is the part I was talking about, about other people being able to see it. And the people of Middle Earth beheld it from afar and wondered. And they took it for a sign. And they called it Gil Estel, the Star of High Hope. So let's pause here for a moment. This is an astronomical occurrence that nobody has ever seen. And then all of a sudden, the people in Middle-earth notice this. And they take it as a good sign. This is an omen. So this goes back to answer the question again of why the Valar would do this. It's the Morning Star. The Morning Star symbolically has been an omen of things to come. We've used it as a phrase to mean somebody who shines light on a concept before it becomes commonly accepted. They were the morning star. This sort of thing. So there's symbolism in that as well. They were telling Middle-earth, something big is about to happen. Get ready. Have hope. Now what's interesting here is you might also be thinking about the Noldor. What about the sons of Feanor? What were they going to do about the Silmaril? They thought it fell into the ocean. That is answered here as well. And when this new star was seen at evening, Maedhros spoke to Maglor, his brother, and he said, Surely that is a Silmaril that shines now in the west. They could tell this wasn't a star. This was a Silmaril with the eyes of elves and having had Silmarils near them. They could tell that this was the light of a Silmaril. Now, you might expect them to respond in ways that they have in the past, but something changes here. Maglor answers, If it be truly the Silmaril which was cast into the sea that rises again by the power of the Valar, then let us be glad, for its glory is seen now by many and is yet secure from all evil. He realizes that this is actually a good thing, even though this doesn't bring the Sumerl back into the hands of the sons of Feanor and follow through with their oath and all of that. This is out of their hands. If this is what is decided by, by the Valar, which he's right about, then this is the best possible case, even if it doesn't fit within their oath. He's wise enough to realize that. You get this feeling that they're, start, they're starting to tire of this, this oath that has brought so much destruction and evil to the world. It goes on. Then the elves looked up and despaired no longer. But Morgoth was filled with doubt. So, of course, not only the elves and the men and the dwarves of Middle-earth would have noticed this sign in the sky. Morgoth would as well. And from his perspective, he has been in Beleriand for centuries now, with no real interference, a little bit from Ulmo, but no real interference from the rest of the Valar, able to do what he wants, thinking they're not playing this game anymore. It's just me and these elves, which he hated. And it was all on his terms. Well, we get this final paragraph. Yet it is said that Morgoth looked not for the assault that came upon him from the West. For so great was his pride become that he deemed that none would ever again come with open war against him. Now, this is talking about an assault from the West. Not only does he believe that he's so powerful that the elves will never rise up again against him in open war. But even the Valar across the ocean wouldn't dare to contest him here. Moreover, he thought that he had forever estranged the Noldor from the lords of the west. Basically, he had made it so that they would never, ever be able to go back to the Valar for help. Things had fallen into perfect alignment. That means that, as far as he was concerned, they were stuck there with him middle-earth and they were never going to get any help and they could never even reach the Valar no matter how hard they tried and the Valar were just off doing their own thing not caring about what was going on with the elves in middle-earth and of course we know that this isn't true it goes on and says and that content in their blissful realm the Valar would heed no more his kingdom in the world without for to him That is pitiless. The deeds of pity are ever strange and beyond reckoning. He's the kind of character who can't understand how to pity something. Why would you take pity on somebody? Why would you empathize with them at all? And as we know from the Lord of the Rings, it was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. It was pity that allowed Gollum to live. It was pity and empathy and sympathy that led to the destruction of the ring and then the last sentence but the host of the Valar prepared for battle and beneath their white banners marched the Vanyar the people of Ingwe, and those also of the Noldor who never departed from Valinor whose leader was Finarfin the son of Finwë. In the words of Gandalf, a thing is about to happen that has not happened in a long time, and it is not just the March of the Ents. The Valar and the elves from Valinor are going to battle. Finally, to save their kindred from the evils of Morgoth. It has taken centuries, but the tides are about to turn. Thanks for listening to the Lord of the Rings Lorecast. If you'd like to learn more about other fantasy worlds, check out my other podcasts, The Elder Scrolls Lorecast, The Witcher Lorecast, and more, at robotsradio.net. If you'd like to reach out, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a note on Twitter at robots underscore radio, or join our amazing community on the Robots Radio Discord. There are links in the show notes, or just search Robots Radio Discord, or find the link on robotsradio.net. I'll see you next time.